Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name's Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Soto Grande, Spain. And I'm bringing you these podcasts. The aim is very clear to educate, to entertain and to energise the tennis community. Welcome to the next podcast. Welcome to episode 86 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Jez Green. Jez is the current fitness coach of Sasha Zverev and formerly worked with Sir Andy Murray for many years. Jez has been around the game for 25 years as a fitness coach. He went to Loughborough University as, as, a, as a tennis player back in the day. He brings a wealth of experience. He lets us in from a technical side. He also talks about the importance of relationships. He gives us lots of stories and insights into Andy and to Sasha. And it is just an absolutely brilliant listen. Sit back, enjoy, and I'm going to pass you over to Jez Green. So, Jez Green, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Good, thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on. It's it's fantastic to have you on. And for, for the listeners, Jez is the former fitness coach of Sir Andy Murray. Uh, you would have seen him jumping up and down in many a box on your TV stations over the last few years. And now the current fitness coach of Sasha Zverev. So... A great story to tell. And where I'd like to start, Jez, is your start in tennis, actually, because I know that you also played tennis to an OK level. Yeah, OK level <laughs> compared to the guys that uh, that I trained. Yeah, you know, like county level, national level, um, you know, decent university level in, in, in the UK. So I, I could hit a ball OK. But uh, I, knew, I knew from, you know, 15, 16, that I, that I wasn't going to be near, near good enough to go professional. But, you know, like all of us, loved the game and, and loved playing it and, and loved all the extras, uh, you know, alongside the training, the fitness, the, the matches. It was just a great sport. So, yeah, it was, my, it was my main sport from, you know, six years old till 16 years old. And where was that at? Where, where are you from? I, I was born up north in Manchester, but uh, I did all my junior tennis in Bucks. So I'm Buckinghamshire. And then at, at 14, then we moved back up to Cheshire for the, the, the next couple of years. But that was less tennis then and much more, um, you know, schoolwork leading up to, to university. And you mentioned you also played a bit of tennis in university. What, which, which university was that? I was Loughborough. So I, I read sports science in, in Loughborough and... And at that time, it was it still still is a you know one of the best sports universities that there is, and Ips and tennis ball. But yeah, I, I was I was part of the the university team that managed to win a few titles. But it's a, it's a little different now, you know, than it was in 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 the nineties when there wasn't so many universities that had uh, university teams. Now there's probably 15, 20 universities that have really good sports teams. But back then it was you know Loughborough, Birmingham, uh, north of universities, but not 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 so many. And in terms of, I guess, the sports science bit and then the S&C bit, when did that passion start to grow? I kind of I knew at um, 
before went to university, probably about 17, mm-hmm. I, I realized that I was still, I was still playing tennis, you know, competitively a little bit at, at that time. But I realized that I, I far preferred the, the training at, at, at that age. I, I was incredibly, I wouldn't say lazy as a kid because I was you know, very sporty, but idle in, in fitness. I wouldn't try that hard. You know, it was <laughs> one of those things. So, but by 17, I was really into it. I, I really liked to enjoy the fitness. I enjoyed the fitness training way more than actually the drills and the hitting tennis balls mm-hmm. by about 17. So I knew then that I was going to stay in sport and more towards the conditioning side rather than, rather than trying to play. So 17. At university, I, I knew that, you know, exactly what I was trying. And I suppose, Jez, at that time, fitness and, and I suppose the sports, sports science, the, the strength and conditioning world wasn't that advanced compared to what we have now. So, so how, how did that all, all start and what was your first role outside of university yeah it, it was definitely um starting to gain a lot of traction and the, the course at university were you know was still pretty relevant to what's happening now uh but straight after university i i was very lucky that i was was given uh, a provision of services contract with the lta within about a year of finishing studies um, with uh, a coach called Dave Samuel, who you know, who was very influential on, on me and helped me a lot in the early stages. I trained his players up in Manchester and then quite quickly on the road. Um, and that, I did that for probably seven, eight years uh, under the LTA umbrella, which, which, which was amazing. Um, Steve Green and a guy called Tim Newnham, who was with Henman at that time, were, were big influence, were obviously pretty sports science minded people uh, and they went to me I had some good ideas then in the right direction um, when I was about 23 24 right okay yeah because it was all I remember that time and I was I was a young player at that time of coming through and it almost felt like there was only the three of you involved in tennis. It almost seemed like there wasn't a whole lot of tennis SNC coaches which I guess no. you you saw an opportunity there, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think you're. I think you're right. I think uh, it was definitely early days of employing people. Now there's, you know, there was there was Steve Green was the only guy who was fine at the LTA full time, uh, and Tim had his own guy. Uh, but you know, that's and you there was I, I could probably say on five, you know, on on, a, on one hand full time physical trainers that I knew in tennis. They were there, but there was so few. Um, and, and yeah, I guess I, I was, like you said earlier, I was passionate enough about it and, and realized that, hold on, there's not many people doing this and the sport is getting more and more and more physical. Mm-hmm. And I was watching these two, two guys train. It was like, okay, this is going to go somewhere. You know, these, these guys are getting very, very athletic. And it, we're kind of in on, not the bottom floor, but only like the first or second floor. Yeah. And, and one question that does jump to my mind, even back in those days, how was SNC in tennis compared to other sports? I don't know so much about other sports. I think it was pretty general. I, I, I think that tennis was borrowing, you know, from other sports more than looking at itself first. That's what I would say. There was, there was quite a lot of, you know, 
soccer drills, there was athletic drills, there was some tennis drills, there was, there was many, it was really cross-training, it was really cross-training, using other sports to do, to do tennis, tennis training. That's the big thing that's changed, I think, over the last 20 years, is that it's become so much more specific yeah. to actually conditioning tennis and not yeah. just cross-training where, where it started. And how do we condition tennis? Depends on the player. Uh, you know, as you know, tennis is, is a sport to train because you need everything. Uh, you need endurance, speed, flexibility, strength, mobility, stability, um, you know, the mental side. You need, there's every single energy system you need. You have to build a base and a foundation that is incredibly strong. And, and then you've got to look at the, every individual player is different. Tennis is an individual sport, it's not a team. So you look at the player in front of you and work out who they are as a person. That's incredibly important. And also what body type they have. And then also what game style they have. And then you put the science on top of it, how to train them. And you try and get a program out of these, these really key characteristics of each individual player. That, that's what the challenge is. It's getting the individual program set for that player that's in front of you, rather than doing everything that kind of fits all. So if you if you have a player, and obviously you you've worked or are working with some pretty high profile players in Andy Murray and Sasha Zverev, if we take Andy to start with, you you started working with Andy. How old was Andy at that time? Around 18, 19. What what does your first two three weeks look like with an Andy Murray? Well, after the first week, where you just say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, you, you, you realise pretty quickly that, that you know Andy and Sasha and these types and, and Andy first were, was incredibly special. You know, I'd, I'd done I'd done maybe twelve years with tennis players by then of all you know, and I had some good players as you know. You know, some of yeah. the LJ guys back then yeah. were good, but then you get someone like Andy, and, and and you know you can't mess up Andy Murray. You've got to get it right. Uh, came with a pretty good base. He had done some good work with an American trainer. Um, so he knew some concepts of, of, uh, of strength and core. And he was quite interested. Uh, but you have to find out very quickly what his body type is, what he's lacking, and, and what also would make him confident. You know, he, you know, he, he likes to, not so much, he likes to run. You know, <laughs> he was, at, at, when he was 18, 19, he was, he was possibly more, defensive than he was in his later life so you know first you've got to make sure that he can last matches that was my idea so look you know you know you can move him you can do tactical stuff with the coach later that's not so much my area but first we've got to build him a body that is not going to um, fall apart in five set matches you yeah. know so you know and by 18 19 it's very difficult for an 18 19 year old doesn't matter how fit you are to last a five set match against uh, a 28 year old pro yeah really difficult um so yeah then you, you build basic endurance and basic strength and, and you look at how he moves luckily again Andy was an incredible mover i mean he, he's, an, he's an incredible mover so you actually use that as a strength that was always going to be one of his strengths how well he moves mm -hmm. so you build his base you make sure he can last uh, and then you look specifically at how he moves on the court and how you can make him more efficient faster more powerful so he can play the kind of game that he wants to play all, all that i would say takes you know, six months to a year to put that kind of yeah. preliminary base inside a player. Yeah, because I guess if we look at we look at tennis coaches, that they often only get six months or a year. 
So I would, so yeah. I would imagine on the SNC side, it seems to be that SNC teams stay longer with players. I guess that's one of the reasons. Yeah, there's a, there's a few reasons for that. I think the physical trainer is is not so, you know, directly battling with the player. Sometimes the coach has a has a tougher mental job. Yeah. It's about winning and losing. Uh, and developing, but the physical training is much more about development and about building. So it's a little bit of a different role. And if you if you have a plan together, a player, unless you really uh, are, are not gelling with the player at all, you're going to be given a year or maybe two to to see how the player feels with your work. You know, as a coach, you can you know that like you can lose two or three first rounds, be doing a great job, and, and be asked to leave. You know, it's unusual that a trainer gets asked to leave that quickly if if they if they've got a, a good program. Yeah. And at that time, if we go back, obviously Andy was bursting on the scenes at that time, and he was starting to become very high profile. And I guess there was the there was a couple of matches where he cramped up. It was you know he started to get a bit of stick from the press. That comes under a lot of scrutiny. How did you go from, I guess, working with a few LTA boys who were playing Challengers Futures to all of a sudden kind of all eyes are on the fitness guy that's going to maybe take this guy to the next step? It, good, really good question. I, I, I think I got lucky a little bit. On, I have a couple of times on timing. I, I think if, I, if I'd have got Andy, you know, five, six years earlier, it, it would have been, I maybe not had the experience of the other players. I needed those you know, 10, 12 years to be, to make mistakes, you know, yeah. to do the wrong training, to get things wrong, uh, to get things right, to see what worked. And, and then when, when, I, when you know, Andy gave me the opportunity, I was 12 years in, um, yeah. you know, so I had, I had experience of, of pretty good level players. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd worked with a couple of top 100, a couple of top 50 players by then, not a top 10. He, he was my first top, top 10. Um, but People, you know, people are nice enough to say you did a good job. And again, let's go back to to a couple of things. And Andy's physical gifts are off off the chart. Uh, the team we had, including, as you know, Matt Little was was yeah. unbelievable guy to to work with in relation yeah. to Andy too. It was great. So our team was great. Um, but when we started, we did an, we started in in November. I forget what it is. Oh, oh seven, maybe oh eight. But. Um, we did, I thought, like an eight-week training block, which was immense. I thought it was, we were excited. It was fantastic. And he went on to lose first round Australia, first round Indian Wells, first round Miami, uh, first round somewhere else. I think he won a couple of matches on the clay. I believe he won Queens and then had the quarters of Wimbledon. But we had a six-month period where he had a, a fair amount of first rounds. Yeah. And, and that was noticed. Like, okay, Andy went from, you know, this, you know, Brad Gilbert, who's very famous you know and, and to this team who's British people do they really know what they're doing he was a good player now he lost first round of Australia first round of these masters but but you know Andy luckily believed in the program and he saw that it, you know six months is not long enough to see what was happening you've got to give it a little more time which would which was great and by Wimbledon his body had transformed a little bit um, and you know he then lasted a couple of five set matches and, and then the whole kind of atmosphere changed. I'm not sure how, if he felt it was the same timing, but it felt then that that six months, that suddenly there was a light at the end of the tunnel. That, okay, it's working, it's working. We're doing okay. <laughs> Is that when he did the thing with his biceps? 
correct yes is that, that that's exactly the moment and and you know that was you know i was sat with with, with matt and with miles and i think it was, it was a pretty big moment it, it yeah. was a very nice moment for him to do that it was you know it was a bit of a you know you know recognition of okay i know what you guys are trying to do and i i, I feel it's working it was one of those signs it was, it was one of those moments i, I will remember it was a, it was a good one because you know like i said the, the six months prior to that it, it wasn't so easy and he i'm sure he was getting frustrated with not winning and how did you just to take you back jez you said you had an eight week training block mm. how did you manage to because that one of the big frustrations i always hear from snc coaches in tennis and, and and i'm sure and please give us some insight is how do you work in this sport you never get to work with the players they're always competing <laughs> so so how have you managed to squeeze an eight week training block in yeah it's again um very very, very good question um it luck is huge and buy-in is huge mm. and you sit down with the player and you say look you, you say through the science that I can't change your body without having, you know, three to six weeks with you. And it's up to the player. You know, I guess it's different with juniors and pros where, you know, the juniors are, are, it's going to be much more difficult. They've got maybe even school. They've got coaching sports. It, it's not easy, but with pros, they can say, okay, I dedicate this time. And that year, Andy didn't make end of year masters. So his last year, last tournament was Paris. Um, we talked earlier in the year, we started, he had a week off holiday in Miami. We started in Miami, something like the 20th of November. And I said, we need, we're going to need until the new year. And he, I believe he gave me at least four weeks, not really playing any tennis. And I asked him to, I said, could you do that? Sasha, Sasha did exactly the same. I said, I need, when I start with you at 16, I need four weeks. And I want that four weeks every year. I know they get it every year. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But if you can get it when they're 18, 19, 20, yeah. and you really get that, the good thing is you may not need it later because you've done the work. But if you miss that window of that 16 to 20 age group window to really build the athlete, you don't get that chance again. Because what happens normally is the coach does a great job. The player's tennis goes up faster than the physical. Uh, and then you can't catch up. Uh, that, that's how I would see it as an SCC. So, you know, I, I now say it's one of my almost non-negotiables. If, if you have me a 16 uh, and you say, you know, you, you've got a week with them, I, I will turn the job down. Yeah. Um, I said, no, there's nothing I can do. I mean, and now I don't need eight weeks necessarily, you know, and we can compromise, but I, you know, I'm going to need six to eight weeks a year where it's just me and him. Yeah. And, and with, with Andy, and Sasha, between the ages of 16 and 20, I think I would have got between 60, six and eight weeks a year, no tennis. Okay. Which for me, which for me is, is, is amazing. Now, if I have other players that can't do that much physical, so maybe I'll get four weeks a year, no tennis. But I need just me and him. Uh, because doing fitness and tennis at the same time, at 18, 19, it isn't, doesn't work, in, in my opinion. It doesn't work. It's very difficult to do it because you're so tired from the physical or from the tennis that it, it, it works against each other, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it also shows, all, I think, for me, the confidence, one, that those guys had in their team, but also, two, that they had in their own game, that they felt, actually, I can invest this time because 
I think one of the big things with tennis players is they always feel, no, no, I'm missing out on an opportunity. You know, I might miss sure. a tournament. I might, I need yeah, to get yeah, to points. Yeah. I need to get the points. And I, I guess it takes quite a special person to do that as well. I, I really, I, I never underappreciate it because, you know, again, in my very limited way, I, I do feel the sport, I played it to a, to a point. So I understand what you mean when you when, when a player says, oh, or starts to panic. And I've had players that, that really panic when they play for seven days. I've, I've had it. So I, I know the feeling, you know, again, we're probably looking at, at, at levels a little bit. You know, if someone's going to be like a university level player or, or social player, it's different. But if you're going for like top 50, the, the physical demands are going to be different. You know, yeah. you could have the best game in the world and the best tactics. If you can't last against these guys, you're not going to win. So, uh, you know, you know, and obviously you've got to link the mental side to that too. You're seeing that they're very special characters, these guys. That yeah. You know, they're the top 10 guys. And I'm saying this with the greatest respect. They don't tend to be normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're superhuman in some ways, but they don't think normally. So to say to them, okay, I need, I need five weeks of your time just to do physical. They would sometimes have the personality to go, okay, yeah, let's do it. I'm okay yeah. with that. I, I trust my game. Let's, let's do it. And from a generic point of view, how does that four or five weeks look? Dep depends on the age, depends on the, the, the time. You know, when, when you're just starting, you're, you're putting in uh, uh, education. You're educating them what what endurance means. Yeah. You're educating them on lifting techniques. You're educating them on sports science. You're educating them on basic nutrition. You're educating them on core stability and stretching. You know, uh, you're educating them on, on periodizing your program, how many times you train in the week and how many days you get off. You know, that first year is very educational, you know, but again, the, the really good ones learn incredibly quickly. So, but I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say the first year with like a really good 16-year-old is incredibly um, sophisticated. Yep. It's really quite basic, you know, your basic your basic running, your basic endurance, your basic track work, your basic lifting techniques, squat, deadlift, you know, pull-ups, but trying to do them with, with immaculate technique. Um, yep. basic core stability, how to control your joints, basic stretching techniques. Um, yep. I, that, that's that's a year, you know. Uh, I, you definitely wouldn't be touching um, really super specific speed or power work. Yeah. Definitely not for a year or two, in my opinion. Depending on depending on the athlete, if they're built like you know, you know your, yourself or, yeah. or Lee Child, something like. I mean, you guys were strong. I mean, you you were you were stronger than some people. You know these guys. You're James Nelson. You remember these guys? Yeah. These these were these were you were strong guys. Yeah. So you could you could hit you guys a little bit harder back in the day. But but you know a different body type. You'd have to go pretty slowly and you go step by step. So you know, what one strength session a day, one basic endurance session a day, probably five days a week. That's you done for the week. It, yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not hyper complicated when you're 16. You get, yeah. It gets much more sophisticated around about 18, okay. in my experience. And how important I call it the the other 16 hours. So you might have them for two two sessions a, a day. The tennis coach might have them for one session a day. But how important are those other 16 hours that you're not directly controlling? Hugely. Um, again, you're looking at. It, it's it's really not easy for players. Look, you know, 
some I'll take my two guys now that I had Andy and, and Sasha were were very similar in, in work rate. They love work. They just they will run through walls for you, which is great. Mm-hmm. The other side of them in life, they're very different. Um, Andy's, you know, much more considered, thoughtful, kind of a quiet guy yeah. away. Um, and and someone like Sasha is much more new generation. He's quite gregarious. He likes, you know, going up, running around, being with people, you know, driving cars, being on boats. He he yes. he likes this kind of lifestyle. But the easier one by far is Andy because Andy mm. would finish work, do his treatment, and just sit watching watch the TV or watching tennis matches when he was you know 18, 19, 20. Yeah. So you knew he was going to eat on time and sleep on time. The biggest problem with this generation I've seen is sleep. Really yeah. big problem. Um, they they don't have any problem going to bed. You know, and not not just Sash. He I wouldn't mind be saying you know, but you know. One two in the morning is not too big a deal, you know, yeah, yeah. for for him. And and they, they find it difficult to switch off. I think probably because of social media a little bit, and they're always engaged in something. But you know, I remember Andy being in his room in the apartment, finishing training, do treatment, dinner at eight, and kind of in his room by like nine thirty ten, yeah. done, done for the day. Uh, and that's much much easier. This the the rest is is getting more difficult to manage than it used to. Uh, and that obviously puts your eating schedule different again. If you don't wake up for breakfast, you mm-hmm. miss that. So, yeah, you got to look at you got to look at a tennis birthday as twenty four hours. It, you know, yeah. every single hour is of importance. Yeah. And even you know, even the, even the hours where you rest or you you go out in some way and do something social, that's important. But it really is geared to it has to be geared to performance almost every hour, which yeah. which people with young players find difficult yeah. these days for sure. And how much would you put that down to your role? Yeah, good question again. I think the nutrition and sleep is highly linked to, you know, you to what, to, I mean, what coach and all the team does, but definitely the trainer. It's conditioning in a way. Yeah. You know, your food is your fuel and your sleep is your, is your recovery for the next day. So, you know, you've got to get involved in both. You know, um, I, remember, I remember doing quite a bit of basic nutrition with Andy when he was, you know, again, probably 17, 18, but he's so, he's so educated and so interested that I think he hired his own nutritionist fairly quickly, which is great because yeah. the ideal world is you get experts. I mean, you know, I think even people are hiring sleep experts now. I mean, nutrition, uh, you know, I love it when a, a player gets interested and starts to look at, uh, ask for expert advice because I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not qualified, um, yeah. you know, and I'm not a sleep expert, but I've got to be involved in it. Yes, I've got to know that the player didn't sleep well, any at three o'clock in the morning, at eight, they're not going to be there. So, so you've got to monitor recovery uh, and and, and yeah. sleep patterns and, and nutrition. Yeah, very good. And you touched on a touched on a couple of differences there with Andy and Sasha in terms of, I guess, personality off the court. But when it comes down to purely training them, what would some of the differences be on how you've programmed Sasha compared to Andy? Yes, sim- similarities first. You know, to, to recap it, their their capacity. In desire for work is incredibly impressive. They 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 question everything. They want to know why they're doing everything, uh, and even more, uh, which is great. So you've got to be on your toes. You can't bluff these guys. They don't have it. Um, you've got to be ready to back up what you do. Uh, but in the, in the same token, obviously, there's a, there's the obvious difference. Sasha is six foot six, and Andy yeah. was around about six six two. 
Yeah. And when you get, and Andy had, you know, very strong legs to begin with, you know, almost like footballer type legs. Yeah. Um, so they were going to get stronger very quickly. At Sasha at 6'6", has got ex exceptionally long legs and long levers, which is going to take a lot more time. Uh, I, I gave myself in my head two to three years to build someone like Andy's base a long time alongside uh, uh, Maddie Little, and the Sasha I gave five. Right. Okay. So I gave myself five years to build Sasha's base, so sixteen to twenty-one, okay. uh, and I'm and I mean base as in really basic training, like basic strength, basic endurance, basic core, and I, and I really. I took my time because at that height, he's very, it would be very easy to hurt him. Yeah. Much less diff easy to hurt someone like Andy because he was naturally pretty solid. Um, yeah. So, so that, that's a big difference. The time to build the base. Uh, movement patterning uh, obviously was different. Uh, they're both, they both play you know, a little bit behind the baseline. They both like yeah. to run. That's a yeah. similarity. So you've got to, you know, you've got to, you've got to look at that as okay. That's their tactic for now. That may be changed in the future. Maybe they play shorter points in the future. But now we've got to get them. They, they both need that basic endurance where they really can run for long periods of time. Um, uh, and Andy was Andy was quicker. Uh, and I knew that now I'm working on Sasha's speed now. So Andy's speed, I I can honestly say, pure speed training. I think we maybe did about a year, a year yeah. and a half, because when he got really strong, he got naturally quicker anyway. He was oh, yeah. a very quick guy. Sasha's speed is going to have to be actually developed, which is probably the most difficult thing you can do with a player. Speed is the most difficult thing to put into a player. It, it, it takes so much time, and yeah. you don't often have that time. So, so Sasha now, actually, the pandemic has helped me a lot yeah. because we made it just a speed year. So... And we left Andy's speed. We didn't do that much of it. And, and now Sasha has gone purely speed. Right, okay. So I've kind of left endurance a little bit. I still maintain it. I left basic strength, just maintain it. And now we're looking at real scientific speed power, like the top of the pyramid, if you want. So so their, their stages of development were, were, were different, were different. And have you noticed a difference this year on the, on the back of that? And how do you measure that difference? His speed, yeah, yeah, on, on court testing, all testing, okay. um, yeah, speed gate testing, and, and the, 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 I've got I've got five speed tests that I use that can be done on a court, I, that, yeah. you know, with, with speed gates, quite easy. Um, uh, uh, anecdotally, yes, I, I've, I've, I see that uh, that, yeah. that he's fast. He tells me that he feels faster in the tests. He got faster, um, so he actually performed the test faster. Um, and people tell me he's got faster. That's mm -hmm. not a good thing. Um, so yeah, and 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 also I I trust I trust clients. Um, you know, when the pandemic came in in March and Indian Wells and Miami were were cancelled, we managed to lock down in a, in a in a resort with a gym for eight weeks. Wow. And he he didn't want to play. So he didn't know when he was going to play. So we had kind of an eight week speed block. So when you give you know, a trainer and a motivated athlete, eight weeks and you have one theme, which is theme, is speed, I would hope you get some results. If you yeah. don't, I should be fired a long time ago. <laughs> so, so, so we got a bit lucky with the, with, with, the, with the pandemic. I remember we used to have the national training days 
and I swear to God, about five times the slowest person, the slowest person in the in the county picked up the fastest time because someone had pressed the stopwatch at the, at the wrong time. And it's, it's amazing that this was that kind of our, our judgment on what type of athlete we were was based on this, this dodgy stopwatch being pressed. Yeah, I know. You know what's funny? You know, do you remember the first test of those Barrio Veltier tests? It was called the baseline sprint. It was a five shuttle inside yeah. tramline to inside tramline. That's my, that's I still use that as my first speed test. Right, I just okay. do two timing gates out now, and just, and I use a stop if there's, if the gates don't work as a backup. But actually, weirdly, I still use that first LTA baseline sprint because I think as, as a as a lateral baseline sprint, it gives me what I need to know. It, it's like it's it, it's actually very useful. So weirdly, I still use that from that from that time. So <laughs> it's good. And on, and on that as well, just to. I know you've touched on some of your philosophies and what you've said, but I guess a bit of a two-pronged question. What, what is your philosophy and how has that changed over the last 15, 20 years? My philosophy has always been that tennis is, is a movement sport. Always been this. Um, people like to speak about, you know, the track work or lifting weights. This, this, is, this is purely to me accessory to movement. I've been fascinated always with the greats and how they move. I've always realized that the best players in the world are always the best movers. Yeah. The best. So, so movement fascinated me, really fascinated me. And, and not like, you know, this player's fast, he, you know, he does shuttles, he does sidesteps. The actual specifics of movement, yeah. where the feet place, what angle the hips are, what angle the knees are, how low center of gravity, how wide the base is, what they do when they hit a wide forehand, what they do, and not just what you think they do, what people actually do. Uh, yeah, because yeah. there's been a lot of myths about, you know, you know, tennis players move on there, you know, stay on your toes, stay on your toes, or, this, or you know, small steps, small steps. Like I heard this when I was playing a tiny bit, and you know, come on, you know, what are you doing? Get on your toes. And it doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, so, okay, I want, to, I want to take all these things I've heard and see if they're actually true. Because as I'm watching these players, I, I see, you know, I watch, you know, Sampras a lot. You know, I, I loved watching him. I watched Hingis a lot. Um, and they, to me, moved in the most massive steps ever. And I was watching with my eyes. And everyone was saying to me, you know, tennis, small steps, for small, quick steps on your toes. And it's not what I was watching. So... Yeah. I spent a good probably three years in my 20s super slow motioning video of the best players in the world and trying to work out what they did with their feet yeah. and where their bodies were. Uh, and that and that's kind of stayed. So so the first thing my eye is always drawn to when I look at a player, you know, Andy and Sasha included, were, was how they move. And if I can spot any areas where they're where they're losing balance or losing mobility or they're slow or or, or something like this, um, uh, and then once you've worked out their movement um, patterns, then you build the strength and endurance around that. So so always the centre of my philosophy is movement. So always, and that's not that that actually has not really changed. How I train it has probably changed. What what yeah. what techniques I used? Because I mean, if I look back at what I what I thought was movement training when I was 23, 24, 25, I, I was a long way away. I was nowhere near. I was yeah. off, but I was on the right path. Um, yeah. But the, 
but yeah, so that, that, that's always been where I, I think that's, the, and again, maybe you said earlier, the opportunity that I saw was not just maybe physical training, but I thought, and still think now, that the, the actual technique of movement is undervalued, is really undervalued, uh, and still to this day undervalued. Very good. So can you give us a really short example of how to train movement? I start always with the split. You know, I, 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 I feel like I work backwards. You know, the split I worked on and saying, look, you know, split. Well, what does that mean, split? And how do you split? Yeah. And, you know, this, the split is a very specific move where, you know, I, I prefer a high split. So you split quite high at the floor. You land on your toes and you sink your weight down, you know, a, a good foot, foot and a half. Yeah. Uh, and normally you, you split on, you know, something like this, a technique. You'd normally land one foot before the other. Yeah. Which, which until you super slow motion it, you cannot tell. So yeah. about, about, you know, 20, 20 few, two years ago, I realized that splits uneven. Yeah. And the reason for that is, is that the, the opposite hip has to open. So the first thing that moves when you change direction is the hip. It's not the foot, it's not the head, it's not the hands, it's the hip. Yeah. And that's the center of your body. So then you realize that there's a flow to it. You know, Sampras was a master's master of this, of landing one foot and opening the hip and gliding the hip towards the center of where they were going to go. Yeah. Um, I also, another thing that I remember thinking, I, I watched Sampras split and then run to a, a running forehand where he's playing it closed. So he runs, he takes off the right foot and, run, and closes his, his, his stance and hits as he runs. Yeah. And I realized that he took, from one side of the tram line to the other, he took three steps. Yeah. So, so those there's two things there that he he hit his left foot first, he opened his right hip, his shoulders did not move. When he put his right foot down, in three steps he was on contact with the ball. Yeah. So, so that to me said, hold on a minute, that's that against everything I'd ever heard yeah. about tennis movement. Sampas has done that move in three steps. So, and then you look at the individual moves and you realize that he's moving in a base that's probably about a meter and a half. Yeah. So then you realize, hold on a minute, every tennis player has to be able to run and maintain a, probably about a meter and a half base. Okay, well, this is getting interesting now, you know? Yeah. So, so there, there's your running forehand, you know, yeah. left foot, open the hip, three steps to contact and then a deceleration position. The, the, other, the other side of the... Of the of the move which started to interest me was I realized thanks to something Agassi said on TV. Right. He, he said, uh, these things, are, I've got a lot of stories. People have helped me out with words here and there. And they pointed me in the right direction. But Agassi was watching this guy, uh, if I remember, it was a guy called Bjorn Powell. And, someone, and he was commentating. He'd been invited up to the booth. And they said, it's amazing how quick this, this Bjorn Powell is. It's amazing, don't you think? And Agassi said, no, that's not what's interesting. And the commentator said, what are you talking about? He said, that's not what's interesting about this player. What's interesting about this player is how fast he stops. And I remember thinking, what is he talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's obvious this guy is so fast. Yeah. And I said, but Agassi said, no, no, that's not what's good. So then I thought thinking, okay, he's talking about deceleration. And you go, ah, tennis is not an acceleration sport. It's a deceleration sport. Mm. The best players in the world are the ones who stop the best. Mm. And then you look at Sampras, Hingis, Serena, Andy, you know, and you go, oh my God, these guys, and Hewitt, I watched him a lot live, yeah. and, I was, and I thought, oh my, that's it. These guys stop on a sixpence. Yeah. It's actually they're stopping. Then you realize why you do weights in the gym. So then it points you backwards. So then why do you, why do you lift weights? 
okay, well, it makes sense. Tennis players need to lift weights so they can stop. That's yeah. their breaks. So all you're doing is working on their breaks. That's how my mind kind of works. Yeah. So, and then all of a sudden that points you to another direction, you know, another, another, like a small story. Um, and actually I said, thank you to the guy just now in, in, in London, uh, 20 years ago, again, I was on a bike. I got lucky. I was on a bike next to, to Carlos Moya. And I, and I always tried to ask a top player when I was like young, I'd be, be nervous, excuse me, sir. What do you think, you know, what is, what is movement or what, what is strength? And, and, and I said to Moya, what is speed in tennis? And he just looked at me and he didn't know me at all. He, and he just said, it's a balance. And he walked off. And I, and I went, okay. So that took me a year to work out, oh, what's, what's that mean? So, so you put all these little things together, what Agassi said, what these, and, and then you realize, ah, okay, I'm starting to get what, what training a tennis player actually means. And like I said, that, that all happened in the space years when I was learning. You know, luckily I had some philosophy when when someone like Andy came along. But uh, you know, so that's kind of how my my mind worked on it all. It's absolutely fascinating, Jez. Honestly, it's uh, you, you just to, just to hear like how you've you've completely engrossed your life in this for for so long, and to to get the insight into how your mind works on it is brilliant. The, the one question I had in my head as you were talking there, somebody like an Andy, how much of it is down to natural movement patterns? Because I'm, I guess I'm always a big believer, those that are pretty good at other sports and they have that kind of natural kind of flow of their body already. And how much do you have to teach? Again, super great question. Yeah, again, I've noticed things over the past that, the best movers have tended to come from the same sport background. Um, and I've done quite a lot of work with the, with the uh, USGA, the American Federation. And it's interesting because, you know, European sports are leg sports and American sports are arm sports, pitching, baseball, American football. So their arms, are, you know, their, their kick serves are unbelievable. <laughs> arm sport are, are European Americans leg sports. Yeah. Um, Maybe the best movers in tennis technically are um, ice hockey sports. So yeah, yeah. the players who played ice hockey, unbelievable tennis movers. So, so if you've got a player who was, a, you know, and if you've, you've seen Andy and, and, and Sasha was field hockey. Right. So that's unbelievable. He's six foot six and he played field hockey. He had to be low and he had to bend down with a <laughs> stick to control a ball. Unbelievable. He did half my work for me. Rafa, genius footballer, you know, Novak, great footballer, Fed, good footballer, uh, Andy, great footballer, you know, um, the Swedes, Bjorkman, Magnus Norman, ice hockey, great, Lendl, ice hockey. Um, right. So, so, and then the ones that are, are arm sports are, are much more difficult to train because they're not natural leg sport people. So they don't, they don't have this word, you said they don't have this flow. And, yeah. it, and it's really important. The, the second part of the question is, yeah, uh, you have to you have to make someone's movement pattern better and more efficient. But I'm I I really try and avoid going against their natural way of doing things. Yeah. You know, there's it's difficult to explain, but you know, someone like Andy had a specific way of moving to his backhand, where he almost does this funny hop misstep, yeah. and it's not trained; it's just him. And a lot of players have this funny little quirks of movement. And, and I leave them alone. I leave them right, alone. Okay. You know, <laughs> I don't touch them. Unless it's damaging 
to the movement and the, and what the, and it gets them off balance, then you have to look at it. But if it's not damaging, I leave it alone. If it's still efficient, it's fine. Then you the the best results you're going to have is if you take and understand their specific natural movement patterns and embrace it and build on it and you make it even better like sash example is a great mover for his height but obviously if he could if he can stay lower and wider for a little bit longer and get some speed through that wide base that's going to help his movement so that's yeah. what that's what we try and do i wouldn't say i there's a couple of things that are that are new that we tried to put into a movement patterning, but I try and just make his natural movement better if it's good. Yeah, very, if it's very good. good. Yeah. These guys are good. Yeah. A bit of a let's see if you can you understand this question. See if I can get it out the right way. How elite are they? These top players as athletes, on how much of it is the, just the eliteness of actually being a tennis player and having that skill compared to other sports. The thing with tennis players is they have to be good at everything. So they're not, they're not going to be the strongest, the quickest, the most endurance. But I would put, I still, because it sounds like a, an arrogant statement for tennis. Yeah. But I, I, I would put on paper round athlete tennis being the best one. I, I, I can't think of another one because they can sprint, they can run you know, half marathons, they can last five hours, they can, they're balanced, they've got good strength, you know. Yeah. They're not weightlifters, so it'll never be that. But if you put everybody, you know, it'd be, it'd be good to do that old show, sports stars again, or superstars, wasn't it? Yeah, Where yeah. you put sports together. But you know, a tennis player is going to be incredibly good. You know, you know, but but they probably won't be the best at the individual dis uh, disciplines. But I, I I cannot think of another sport. The only sport that could be close is a sport that is a fight sport where you have to have all that and someone's trying to is trying to knock you out <laughs> you've yeah, got the yeah. mental side well but i think if you put like a sport on paper you know and everything you know i think tennis is is the toughest sport that always brings into my head as well like you talked about you getting six or eight weeks of the year just just from a physical point of view and i know someone like an andy or sasha probably plays 18 20 tournaments a year i would imagine it's a little bit less than some some players out there so so you have to be not just maintaining throughout the rest of the year i guess you need to be also also developing so if we take something like a grand slam and if we talk about a grand slam as maybe five or six weeks of work i would imagine not just the one or two weeks especially those boys that are either winning it like andy or sasha now making finals how how are you still developing the athlete during such an important competition period? Yeah, that also, in my experience, it changes up to the age, it seems to be, I'm kind of guessing a little bit, up to the age of about 20, um, you can still train through tournaments and, and quite close up to matches and they can handle it. Even in slams, we, we've had, I remember Andy, doing pretty hard, you know, track work and gym work up until like the Thursday, Friday, maybe before a Monday start of a slam. Um, yeah. He would train through Queens. He'd play a match and do stuff in the gym. He would, he'd obviously, the, the two weeks before Queens, he'd be on full training on, yeah. on, on and off the court full. Um, when they tended to get to the later stages, maybe like fourth rounds and quarters of slams, that, that had to stop. So yeah. like, 
And now Sasha now doesn't train through tournaments anymore. Mm-hmm. He, he can't. He needs all his energy, especially not stamps. And even even the smaller ones, the, the 500s, he, his, his style of play is quite physical and I can't take energy from him. So, you know, up to the age of around about 20, I would say you could train right up to tournaments. And I'm talking about pretty full sessions, pretty yeah. full, pretty full. And they can yeah. handle it. You know, maybe give them 48 hours to... to um, to rest before their first match but but yeah that that stops at about 20 and and now now leading up to tournaments it's only sharpening work so i i do which which works into what we want to do just works into core and speed work all the way up to us open just now sasha was was doing plyometric and kind of speed work um for the whole week before and and a little bit in between days we can still do you know 20 minutes of sharpening stuff and obviously core work continues but no no strength, no endurance. Because okay. I'd heard that Andy, maybe a day or the day before he played in a slam, would would often do very heavy power work. It might just be kind of like one one set or one rep or something that kind of fires fires things up. I don't know if that's just a myth that I'd heard. You know, I, again, I, I don't know. I don't know what he's done the last few years. I've not, I've not been there, but beforehand. No, that that that's that's not that's not incorrect science. Actually, mm-hmm. would he would he throw a medicine ball or do or do some sprint type stuff? Yeah, and maybe some jumps. He definitely wouldn't lift heavy ish okay. weights. That he never did that. I don't know, and he wouldn't do heavy reps. No, day before match, no, no, okay. because that that could work, but it also that really taxes the system to a full. So. Yeah. Three, four days out, maybe yes, maybe okay. yes. But, but day, day before a big match, no, not even do that. No. Okay, no. no, great insight. Can I just? I'd like to move into, I suppose, the data side of things. Obviously, in the science world, you're certainly ahead of us stupid tennis coaches who who can't spell science at times, you know. But what has been said on the podcast by by a couple of guests is that they feel that the sports science world or the strength and conditioning world some coaches out there are almost hiding behind the data nowadays rather than actually being coaches. I don't know what you think of that statement. Data's become definitely incredibly important and, and, you, and you have to embrace it. You have to. It's like anything, how you use it. I, I can't say I've seen coaches hide behind it. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen them use it politically um for maybe things that are not so smart the, the, the best coaches who use it are the ones they use it tactically to work out exactly what's going on the court so they want to they want to know exactly what happens against this player what this player is going to do you know tactically based they're really good tactic based and it, and it leads on something that's become for me incredibly important on, on the physical and it leads into the coaching i actually think it's where trainers and coaches now and in the future are going to come together a lot more is that trainers are going to be able to tell coaches um, parameters and exactly what their player is going through on the court, you know, mm-hmm. exactly um, how, you know, simple things like how far they run, how, you know, how fast they're, they're starting, how fast they're stopping uh, their, their positioning on the court where they're playing on the court uh, their acceleration, their force data, 
how, how much force they're using. Um, and this is what, you know, if I look at myself, the frustrating thing I found with coaches, and I'm sure coaches found it the other way, is when a coach would say, I'm doing like a really hard or really easy session. And I can tell that it, it's, it's not the session they think they're running. That's what I found frustrating. You know, we had it a few times that, you know, I, I and, 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 you know, things like data from Hawkeye, from matches, you can, you can yeah. see exactly how far players run and, and you, know, you know, where they're being served to and where they're serving. You can get all that data off Hawkeye quite easily now. And if you, and if you pay like the top players do, you can get sophisticated data, what's really happening. Um, and so I know, I know in a match, like, for example, Sasha, Sasha against Dominic in the final US Open, I've got all of his movement data. I know exactly what Dominic did to him and what he did to Dominic. Exactly. So, so then when you run a session on court, I know this data. Um, and if I put a catapult, you know, a monitoring device yeah. on Sasha, and they say that this is going to be as, as hard as playing Dominic, you know, and they come off the session, I say, it's nowhere near. No. He's run nowhere near. Then, then that gets frustrating. But the good thing is that, or, you know, or I do a physical session where I think it's going to be quite easy, you know, not so difficult. And then my data shows that I've killed the guy. Yeah, and yeah. I know that, oh no, which has also happened. So coaches and trainers can come together in this data. And if you, if you know these basic, like, you know, list of 10 things later, you can then plan every single session and, and, and it's going to help the trainer and the coach work together more. That's where I see my role. And you can see a coach and a player like light up when they're interesting and you show them something that is factual. Yeah, yeah. It's a fact. I'm not guessing how far you run when you play Dominic team. I know how far you run. I know how, how much force you used. I know, and I know how many times you stopped and started. So I can plan physical, and actually I can also plan tennis sessions. You know, if you're doing simple drill, you know, two cross one line, and you give me a minute, I know how many times you're going to stop. So I can, I can actually match the physical data with the tactical tennis data on court. Yeah. So that to me is where it's kind of going in my, in my view. Yeah. And I think, it, again, it's been underused. There's been, you know, including from me, there's been a lot of guesswork. Yeah, about absolutely. what you think what, what you think you're making players do you yeah. know and i i've been guilty of it i have for sure guessed on many many sessions and i've been like overtrained 100 it brings me to i mean i completely agree with everything you say jez and i think i think the whole world of tennis is so much better for it and i think there's some amazing data out there and the training's got better it's got more professional you know, all of these things. So why is there so many injuries nowadays? There's two ways to look at this. Is pushing 40 years old uh, and he's playing top of his game. So, you know, no, even, even Rafa is like 34 years old. So the average age of the top 100 is probably, you know, six years older than it was 20 years ago. So obviously injuries and recovery strategies is improving. You know, they're not injuries where they stop your career, which is which is one thing. Um, the other side of it is there's, yeah, there probably is more incidence of more acute uh, overloady kind of injuries because, you know, because the game is so intense. I mean, yeah. the game is brutal. I mean, 
you know, I mean, again, all levels. I don't mean to always speak about top players because you know, you know, juniors and social players are, are equally as important. But you know, you you want to go and try and play a five-set match against Nadal and see how you feel. I mean, yeah. this is brutal. This is maybe one of the hardest things you can do in sport yeah. as, as a you know to battle this guy physically. So the body, the body is not designed to be a tennis player. The human body is not designed to be a tennis player, you know, and it's not designed to stop and start decelerating 10 to 12 times body weight every time you stop, you know, and the game has obviously got faster and faster, which means the players are having to accelerate and stop faster and faster. So the joints are under pressure, the muscles are under pressure. So you're going to get you know, a lot of these kind of, you know, acute um, I would hope the chronic type injuries are being managed better by the physios and the teams of people in recovery. And that's why we see players playing way, way, way longer, which has got to be a great thing. So yeah. I think it's twofold that thing about, about injuries. Um, do you, you have you have experience probably in your academy about lots of kids getting hurt? I'm I, I, I think I, I think probably the question is probably aimed a little bit at a lower level. You know, and I think if I try and ask it a different way, I guess the common common injuries, there seems to be more patterns. If I go down the lower level of common injuries of tendonitis, of, you know, slight muscle strains, you know, slight inflammation. And I guess my challenge on it is, do these players almost have too much information now? Do they know too much about it? You know, the amount of players that I see at that, that level that are, can come out and they can give all of the fancy terminologies for what's wrong with them. Whereas maybe back in my day, your day, that was just a bit, bit sore, do you know, and you kind of, you kind of cracked on. So, so I guess, do you have any advice around habits and the importance of habits to stop those, those common injuries that seem to happen quite frequently? Yes. Information has definitely got a little bit, maybe too available let's put it that way yeah so people can self-diagnose and maybe if they don't want to play that day there's suddenly a rotator cuff injury of the infraspinatus <laughs> they've just read about yeah. um yes that's true i mean i would think that to a motivated junior uh, they, they want to play so you yeah. don't they, you know if you see that a lot you've got to look at the personality of the player yeah. but saying that look you know again i've been around federations and academies and the injury prevention in some places is 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 better than others and and i and and these kind of drills that are termed prevention i by their nature they're not easy to do and that by their nature they take a lot of concentration even something like you know an, like an external rotation or to, to protect your shoulder you can do this like like that yes, and you're yeah. doing the exercise but it's going to make no difference whatsoever yeah. If you're not doing it perfect, yeah. it is not going to work. <laughs> so yeah. the education is, and, and it's really tough because it's time consuming and it's really not interesting for kids because they get bored. Yeah. But that is the education on how you do it. You have, you know, um, you have eight or 10 exercises that are injury prevention that you and your team believe are the number one things and they are non-negotiable. Like, yeah. I've got my 10, 12 that I've used all my career. I still use them now on a, on a, every other day probably. And I can see when I start doing them that Sasha's eyes glaze over. I yeah. can see it. He's going, 
oh, he said, Sasha, you're six six. We've got to protect your knee and your yeah. hip and your shoulder. But he's like, oh, okay. And he'll do it because he's professional. But, you know, and I'm behind him, obviously, being not a pain, making sure he does it properly. But yeah. it, it frustrates him. But he does do knowing that it's the right thing to do. So you've, you've got to be pedantic about it. And you've got to do, and you're, people you're training, you're going to be doing it almost every day. And that's what yeah. I say to, to, to Federation, said, look, you've got, when they come into your doors, when they start, they've got to know that this is just going to happen. It's a non-negotiable, you know, yeah. that warm-ups. And I'm still fighting it. You know, I don't, I don't have the answers. I get four all the time on warm-ups and warm-downs. Believe me. Yeah, yeah. I get four on a daily basis. Sasha is not keen on warming up. I've had to write different structures of warm-ups to keep him interested. And, and Andy would warm up for 45 minutes. And he said, you tell Andy to warm up this muscle here for... 10 minutes and he'll do it because he's yeah. got that specific mind but Sasha's mind is is quicker is, is all over the place so you know you have to but, but still he knows that that has to be done it has to be done yeah. it's a non-negotiable and they're gonna they're not gonna thank you for it but they will eventually <laughs> yeah. and you and, and talking about that I guess relationship relationships and it's the last thing I want to talk to you about because I guess I could listen to your technical talk all day. It's brilliant. And, and, and your insight, honestly, Jez, you've been an absolute star, the insight that you've given. But it ultimately still all comes down to relationships before you can get that technical knowledge out. <laughs> you know, so in, in, in a position of, a, of an S&C coach, fitness coach, compared to maybe a tennis coach, how do you get the balance of, being professional enough but maybe not too professional and and then not making it also become too pally either and to the point where it becomes a bit of a bit of a mess around i guess i'm not just talking about you because you're the ultimate professional working with at the very top of the game but more about i suppose advice to snc coaches out there yeah i i, I say the same thing and it's not easy to to give an answer the key is always to be, for me anyway, to, to be friendly, but understand that you are not their friend. Yeah. They, 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 they have friends. That's not your job. Yeah. You can be friendly, but, you know, some days they, you know, they, the players, and, and you've got to be able to, to say things in a way that it's respected. Um, yeah. So you've got to be careful. So friendly, but... You know, so I, I you know, I, <laughs> I'm probably known as not the most like social person when I'm traveling. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, hang out in a room and play PlayStation. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I'd go for a meal of the, but I wouldn't, you know, hang out so much. Yeah. I, I don't think that's my job. You know, that that's not that's not what I do. So, I'm not a hangout guy. I don't think that the physical trainers should hang out that much. Obviously especially as kids, if, if you, you've got to be friendly, especially maybe if they get in their 20s, then that's yeah. a bit different. They understand the differences. But um, and so you've got to have that professional distance at, at all times. And I think it's incredibly important. Um, I really do. And it's not easy balance to find. If, if they, you know, and I've not always found it. I, I've, I've gone too much one way and too much the other a couple of times and you've got yeah. to find the balance you know I've, got, I've gone too soft and i've also been too hard i think a couple of times you know yeah. isolated instance but but, but you know it's down to, it's down to trust and and respecting your your job you you've got you've really your 
I'm, I'm employed and I'm paid to do a job. My job is, is to make, to help, you know, help Sasha and the, to become the best athletes they possibly can be with the information I have. When they don't need my information anymore and they're happy, we shake hands. It's no problem. It, it's, but it's that. That's what you pay me for. So mm-hmm. you pay me to give you the best information I possibly can at my disposal. Uh, on a daily basis um uh, and if and that means if you're not listening to me i've got to try and make something happen where you do listen to me you know Uh, or if you're not in a good mood or if you're trying to be do something that's going to disrupt me i've got to try and step away and and retain that that professional trust you know and i think eventually if players realize that you're consistent the other thing i try and always Again, I don't always do it. I, I, probably, I, th- I probably think I do it more than uh, the players will tell me. But I try and be the same every day. I try and be incredibly consistent. Um, I think that's important. They don't, they don't want me to be high and low and like ridiculously happy and then moody, sad, you know. Yeah. So win, lose or draw or hard training, easy training, I try and be the same person every day. Uh, and I think that's also, they see that. And they get they they hopefully get trust and confidence from that that I'm not I'm not moody and I'm not inconsistent because I think that if they spot that players especially young probably they start to use it and then they get in a bit of trouble you know uh, let's try and wind wind the trainer up you know <laughs> you know and, and and or wind the coach up which is completely human nature it's fine you know but you've got to be you've got to be as balanced as you possibly can while imparting very consistent information on daily basis. Yeah. And how do you manage that consistency when you have Andy Murray gnarling at you in the player's box? <laughs> and, and Sasha's verve. Um, because because you, you, you've known them since they were young, you've got a relationship with and you know that they are competitors. You've got to understand that. And I said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, these guys are not normal in the relation of, of a general population, and they're not supposed to be. Uh, I am. I'm just a normal bloke who who has some science information, but these guys are trying to do very special things, and they're incredible competitors. So their frustration comes out from being pseudo perfectionists and competitors. So they're in the heat of battle here. They're in the heat of battle. And they are fighting for their life and survival and they are venting anger at you it's not personal it's not personal i, I never felt it was but we ha- you have to say andy you called me such and such sasha why did you call you know but you can see that they're fighting so so if someone's a player's fighting for their life and they want you're fighting to win you realize it's not personal you know you realize it's not personal um uh, the other thing is when when they're away from the court and the tournaments in the gym, away from everybody, they are they're, they're running through walls for you. So whatever you tell them to do in training, they do it day after day after day after week after month. And you realize that they, 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 they work for themselves, but they work for you. So when they respect the work like that yeah. and, and they get angry and they're competing, you realize that it's just what they need to do. Look, w- would you rather they didn't do it? Yeah, I think Andy would rather he didn't do it, but it's it's he can't. It's it's his natural 
neutral, compared spirit, you know. Um, and, you know, it, the worst would be if they gave you this and then, and then quit on the court. Yeah. Then you go, well, what am I doing this for? Or in the gym, they go, no, I'm not doing this today. I'm not doing this session. Then you know that you're, you're on your way out. It, it's, 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 it's over, you know what I mean? But if, if those things are intact, then, then venting I can handle. And, and, you, and, you know, it's difficult. But you don't, it, it's, it's not about you. It's not about me. It, it's not personal. It looks personal, though. Believe me, people have said, how could you do it? I said, but, but uh, you're a tennis player. You would know yeah. that, you know, when, you, when you're fighting on court and you're incredibly frustrated and you're, you're stressed, you're going to vent sometimes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I was fortunate enough to sit, to sit in Andy's box and I'm sure you were there for the Djokovic 2012 semis in Australia. Oh yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so uh, when, he, when uh, he lost, when he lost, when he lost in five. In five. Yeah. So I was. Yeah. Uh, it's it's actually I was pretty much I think directly behind you and Ivan. Um, he he'd sent a very kind of quick story. The the boys Liam Brody and Josh Ward Hibbert had won the doubles. And Andy had sent a nice little note down to say, you know, well done to the boys, which was lovely. And, you know, here's some tickets to come and watch watch the semi-final. And what a privilege that was for me that day. And I, and I, I just sat there and at the intensity, the intensity that day. That was, and I, no, that was an amazing match. It was, was an amazing match. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember him, and, I, and I've said this to a few people, I believe that that day... I witnessed, we witnessed Andy overcome some demons that day that, that actually, even though he lost the match, because the third set, I remember he was looking up at the box and he just kept saying, and I think this is good for juniors to hear because they'll have, we all have these feelings. He kept saying, I just, I can't do it. I've told you, I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. And, and, then, he, and then he did, and he won like a 7-5 set in the third set. And I almost felt like I witnessed him go, oh, I can do it. I've done it. I've, I've won this unbelievable set against Novak Djokovic in the semi-final of, of a Grand Slam, probably to the point where he relaxed a bit and lost the next set like 6-1 in about five minutes. Mm. But, but that was obviously the, the year that he, that, he, that he had such a fantastic, such a fantastic year. Um, but then my next bit was then I've listened to Matt Little talking about not that specific match, but how he, he actually used to prepare for matches. And again, I think it's a great thing for juniors to hear that he would actually prepare. <laughs> what are my values? What is it that I want to showcase? Because otherwise I, you can end up getting caught up with the emotion. Is that something you had to do as well? Or did you think that, or, or did your, your personality not get too attached to it? No, uh, yeah, a bit different. I mean, again, Maddie one of the most amazing people and, and, and doing, continuing to do an incredible job. He, I mean, you know, one of the funniest guys ever probably took, he hadn't been in poly tennis as long as I had. So probably took Andy's things a little bit more personally. Yeah. Um, and he had to like prepare to get, <laughs> to get, yeah. to get screamed at. Um, eventually he, he, he also knew it wasn't personal, but to, you know, it, it wasn't easy. It's rough, you know, yeah. No, I, 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 you know, like maybe, maybe I bluffed myself. I, 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 you know, I bluffed myself that 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 it wasn't it wasn't personal. Maybe it's all a bluff. 
yeah. I I never had that. I, I I what I felt I was always very comfortable and relaxed when I knew Andy had done the work. That's yeah. what I felt. So even if Andy was going crazy, and 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 that match you say in Australia, I remember it very well. I, I do think that was a, a an incredibly good mental match, from Andy. He stayed with Novak the entire time, and it was probably four and a half, five hours, and they were toe to toe the yeah. entire match, and it was it was fantastic performance. Um, uh, but I know I, I I was okay because I know he'd done the work. Yeah. Um, I I get very nervous watching when I kind of know that they haven't and yeah. they're going to get found out. You know, I've had to watch, and even though I'm not someone like Sasha Andy when they were young, Sasha had to play um, actually Andy, you know, and Rafa when he was like 17, 18, yeah. and he was good enough to make slams, and I knew that he wasn't. Yeah. physically ready so i knew i was gonna to have to watch some pretty brutal stuff and and, yeah. and that makes me a little bit nervous so yeah. but but no i didn't you know i mine was a plan i i guess also probably i i hid i hid behind the plan you know if i thought andy's physical block had done well and australia also remember australia was always on the back of november december training block yeah. where andy had you know, killed himself. Yeah, yeah. So I knew, I knew Andy in Australia was was a beast, was an animal, and people yeah. knew it. So that was maybe a bit of pride about it as well. But I kind of knew that if if Andy was good, Andy in Australia, he's going to be physically tough to beat. You know, he's yeah. going to be very physically tough to beat. So yeah. I, I was always relaxed watching Andy, and, and as we all know, Andy is a, is a is a tactical and tennis genius. So I I knew he he can turn matches like like this, and he's yeah. so clever. He is. Yeah. So, so I, I felt that, and even, 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 you know, even when he was really venting and getting at you, and it was tough, you know, it, it's not easy. I, I never thought it was personal. I knew that he could, he could turn matches around, and so I, I was confident in, in physically. I, mean, yeah. I think, I, or maybe I just bluffed myself. I don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he, cer he certainly was. He certainly was. Look at what he did. And what about relationships with coaches? You know how you've you've worked alongside some pretty high-profile coaches in in Ivan Lendl, you know David Ferrer now. You know how how do you manage those relationships and how and I guess how critical is that relationship as well? Uh, it, it's it's vital. Yeah, you've got to be on the same page. You've really got to be. And and again, not easy. I mean, you know, Ivan is. A, a, a strong personality he's tough as he should be you know i've come to know him very well over the years but when we first met he didn't know me he he had won eight slams and number one in the world for three years but but okay i was a trainer he didn't he why would he trust my work so you you have to again present people like of this level you've got to present them with a very very good plan and you've got to show that your knowledge is as important as their knowledge because yeah. they're not, they haven't gone through the sports science university and stuff. So I'm paid that my knowledge is you haven't got it. But in the same turn, obviously, whatever someone like Ivan or David says that he wants on the court, I'm going to do my best to do. The, the best things for me is when the coaches tell me what they need. I said, I need him to move better to a drop shot or to a yeah. smash. You know, I love that because then I have a focus and we can work together. So I would always fire coaches with a lot of questions. You know, I, I, I say, what, what do you want? What do you see on court? What are you not happy about? What do you think? And someone like Ivan is very straight. So he would say, he's not good enough there. He can't last that. He's not good enough here. That's not going to cut it. 
and, and he, he would say the same thing. He'd say, what are you going to do about it? And, you know, I'd say, give me a day. And I write, I think I write a program and I show him and then I show him on paper and I show him on the court and he goes, right. Okay. How long is that going to take to make it better? And I say, usually give me, you know, three, four weeks if you can, please, you know, cause I need that to do And he'll go fine. And, and he won't say another word. And three or four weeks later, he'll, he'll, he'll either say, I see it, it's worked, or it's not good enough, you've got to do something else, which to me is perfect. That's what I want from coaches. You know, I want yeah. them to be that, that black and white. I, I guess maybe because I've worked with black and white kind of coaches. The yeah. ones that, I don't mind, you know, kind of you do what you do on the court, and I, I've got tennis covered. I find this kind of one more difficult to work with. Yeah, I, need yeah. people, I, I like coaches to tell me what they want you know, on the court. My player does not do this. Sort it out. Yeah. I, I, I like that myself personally. So, so Ivan to me was, I mean, also he had access to someone like Lendl, who's just got experience beyond anything. It's a privilege to be around, you know, the Murrays and the Lendls of this world, you know, uh, and you just a sponge, whatever they say you listen to. So, but, but I find it very easy when they're quite aggressive with their information. I find that quite much, much easier to deal with. Isn't Ivan just the, uh, the Czech Dave Savile? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's why, I mean, I traveled, as you probably know, I traveled mm. eight years and Dave is still a really close friend of mine and a huge influence and, and pointed me in the right direction so many times um, um, and st still does. Um, and yes, it, it, he, he's very sophisticated in his simplicity. He wants to coach his way. You know, you, you not necessarily like his way. He has his way of coaching. He wants the physical to fit in with his way of coaching. And he has certain players where he'll be very successful with. And if you put those three things together, it's, it's incredibly effective working environment like that. He, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. Yeah, yeah. It, it's he, Dave. I've told this to Dave. He is, he's got great air that Lendl doesn't even possess. <laughs> yeah. Lendl is black and white and that is it. Dave, <laughs> yeah. you can, Dave, you can negotiate with. No chance with Lindor. <laughs> yeah. uh, and what about David? Same um, black and white as in what he believes and intensity on yeah. court. His drills and his, he wants full intensity from the first ball, full footwork, full legs, full focus, full attitude. Um, obviously, he brings some Spanish style drills and slightly different drills, but his intensity demands are the same. Yeah. Um, he the difference is he's only just started in coaching which he would yeah. admit so he's also learning coaching you know yeah. so he's coached a little bit so he's probably asking much you know he's asking why would i do this physically he's asking yeah. much more questions that than someone like ivan or dave would ask because they've been doing it yeah 30 years you know so but intensity and and non-negotiable attitude that's a, a very similar traits from what these coaches want they do they cannot accept they cannot accept mediocrity. They, they just can't do it. It's not in their makeup. They, they yeah, just, yeah. They, it's just, they just cannot do it. They can't do it. You know? Very good. My last question before the quick fire. Advice for SNC coaches wanting to make it, make a, a, a real, I guess, splash, splash in the sport of tennis. What percentage of their time would you advise to be assigned to delivery programming and education uh, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm guessing they're coming in with a with a quite high level of education in their in their training yeah. life, you know. So they've, they've been educated in physical training. So that's like more like academic style. After that, I mean, also I'm lucky with the sports science, but the people I learned the most of were the other trainers, like the Steve Green, the Tim Newnham, the Salvador Sosa um, was a Spanish trainer, Ken Matsuda, who was Greg's trainer. Uh, I watched Sampras trainer quite a lot. If if you and if you've got that science in your mind, and if you can if you can experience going to academies like yours or, or you know Sanchez Casals, mm-hmm. and you can watch these guys with top players, that's invaluable. They show you the way to do it, and and then you can formalize your own philosophy. You then have to do you know I still think it takes ten years or so to try and work out how to be a really good tennis trainer with knowledge because it's a difficult sport. If you come from tennis, maybe you can shortcut it a bit yeah. but then then you've got to get you know you've got to really think hard about writing programs and then you've got to do hours and hours of practical um, so yeah I mean and 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 shadowing other trainers. Trainers who, who work with good players if they come into town or go or or offer your services free to an academy for a week so you can yeah. you know you just walk around and you watch the trainers play it tracks what they do um, that's what that's what that's what helped me a lot you know if you can get to speak to a few of them that's that's amazing that's really good that that helped me a lot um, and then yeah you you've got you've got five to ten years of of working with all different types I mean the LTA years when I was responsible for kind of 16 to like early pro to like 22, this was unbelievable. I mean, I had all types of players. I must've had a hundred players, you know, to try and write programs for. And it was unbelievable to do that. It was, and I, and thank, thankfully I did because, you know, now I realize that I, I learned how to train every different type of player and personality and, and, and game style. Uh, and it was brilliant like you know an academy like yours if you're just starting out it would be amazing to watch the training you have there and start to take groups and do sessions and, and, and spend five years there you know working on I don't I don't want to say experimenting I mean working on players and seeing yeah. what your philosophy is and what works yeah, yeah. but be but be, be guided by people who have already done it for like 10 20 years you know yeah. that, that's what I'd say um, and yeah and, and, and research I also underestimated maybe the amount of research I did. I was just interested. So I read loads of papers. I watched hours of videos between 23 and 26. Yeah. I watched hours of videos of of training and, and movement and, and super slow motioning matches. I must I mean, hours and hours work out if my drills were any good and making up new drills and stuff like that. So that was, you go through blocks, I think, where you, you do different things. You know? But I think it takes you know five ten years to get your philosophy down yeah as a trainer i think yeah very good are you ready for the quick fire round sure gym or track (laughs) gym your favorite slam from a physical facility point of view australia atp cup or davis cup atp cup Three sets or five at slams? Five. The three most influential people on your career? I mean, you've got to put Andy Murray in there. Um, Dave Samuel, 
I'm going to go Dave Samuels, Steve Green, Andy Murray. That's hugely important, those three. Very good. And one change that you would make on the ATP Tour? Earlier finish of the year. I, I think I've, I think it's in, in, I know it's a difficult, but from a scientific training point of view, finishing in late November is insane. <laughs> I don't mind, it's, it's really difficult. I would the, the 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 WHA I think have it spot on. They finish the you know the middle of October yeah. or, or late October. That's fantastic. I think that's the way forward. That's my biggest thing. I think that it should be a ten month season. Very good. And one rule change that you would have to the game. I don't actually mind the the, the idea of non of no not the five minute warm up. I, I quite idea why you'd do things differently. You would play your practice closer to the match and you do physical warm-up close you'd go on really warm i quite like that idea of going from the gym almost from practice court to the gym yeah. straight on court well i know it's not easy to do but i actually quite like that idea of making it fast like that just yeah. just go straight in you know get going yeah, yeah. that would be a that would be a nice addition that's for sure yeah. uh, what's your favorite quote I, I i use uh train train hard train smart and recover well as the key ingredients to being great athlete, those three things. I say that all the time about, and I'm emphasizing training smart. Yeah. You know, any, anyone can train hard, train hard, train smart, and and, um, and recover well. You know. Very good. And who should our next guest be? To get Lendl on, that'd be, that'd be funny. Um. <laughs> so our rule, our rule, is whoever you say you are now responsible for bringing onto the show. So that's now your accountability, Jez. For you to pass the control, the controllables test, you have to get Ivan Lendl on the podcast. <laughs> I'll definitely I'll definitely say that I did it. It was fun. I'll definitely do that. You, you never know with him. He's a strange character. Well, we would love that. Wayne Ferreira last night said Roger Federer. Yeah. So I tell you what, if we, if we, and then the, and then the guest before said Andy Murray. So if our next three guests are Andy Murray, Roger Federer, and Ivan Lendl, we got a pretty good podcast lined up. Get them all in, get them, get them all in one go. That'd be a classic. <laughs> yeah. Way. That'd be the best. <laughs> Jez, no pressure for you, down on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jez, you've been a star. Thank you so much for your time. Brilliant. A pleasure. A lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Keep up the good work, mate. Big thank you to Jez for his time. It's not easy to get someone like Jez to come on, obviously, and certainly to to be so open and, and, and honest about situations working with two of two of the best players over the last 15 years in, in Andy Murray, Sir Andy Murray, but then also Sasha Zverev, who is now, I think we can all agree, a top five player isn't a million miles away from winning a Grand Slam and to understand how they train, when they train, the type of training, the sort of personalities they are. You just don't get that type of insights so easily. So thank you, Jez. Um, my takeaway is I think the the simplicity of building the athlete from the age of 16 to 20, you know, and yet the difficulty of doing that every day, <laughs> In terms of, in terms of making sure the exercises are do, done to a world class level, you know it's not just a case of prescribing. 
it's then the case of actually doing to top top quality uh, but very much around the basics and i think there's people globally that are trying to pull rabbits out the hat to create athletes i thought that was really nice the way that that was put and then i think i, I took a lot from the the way that jez spoke without giving too much away in the way that he spoke was just obviously the complete differences of an Andy Murray and a Sasha Zverev. You know, is that a generational thing? You know, are we creating in this new generation, even our best top tennis players, that they are a bit social media obsessive? They are a little bit obsessed with the attention that that brings, whereas, you know, Andy seemed to be pretty happy to go and put his slippers on and, and watch the programmes back at home and, and be a good boy. And, and I thought that was really interesting to come out and, and certainly picked up the jazz and found that a little bit easier working with, with an Andy Murray. And you would imagine that Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic from that era are the same. Now, when we look at tennis, this next generation is struggling to knock those guys off the top. It seems like Dominic Thiem is the one, but it seems I would imagine Dominic Thiem is also living his life, every minute of his life right. So maybe for the likes of a Sa Sasha Zverev, obviously Nick Kyrgios, you know, these type of players that are maybe coming next, are they doing everything that they possibly can? and some of those things that are absolutely out of Jez Green's control. I took that from it as well. Uh, those were my takings. A big thank you to you all for listening, as always. Thanks for the comments, the sharing, the feedback. I'm Dan Kiernan. This is Control the Controllables.